chapters 18 and 19. So Joshua chapter 18 and 19. Now, I feel like this morning, congratulations are in order. After today, we'll have made it through the land boundaries of the territories that God gave to the 12 tribes of Israel in the book of Joshua. Uh, maybe I should wait till the end of this sermon to hand out congratulations, but I'm just going to go ahead and do that uh, just to say thanks for hanging in there with me as we have made our way through this book. I know these passages can be a little bit tedious at times, but I hope that as we've done this that it, you've actually found some excitement and some joy as we've seen the deep richness uh, and touched on some of these hidden uh, mysteries and, and um, the real real impacting, uh, the weird way these chapters have impacted me. I hope they've impacted you. What we hold in our hands here is the physical evidence of God's faithfulness, discovering the way that God has carried out his word, fulfilling his promise that he made all the way back in the days of Abraham. So this is not a small thing. Now, this morning, we do have quite a bit of ground to cover this morning. So, uh, we're going to be looking at the land which was allotted to the seven remaining tribes, the tribes of Benjamin, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan, having already covered what was given to Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Judah. Uh, before we begin, I have got to correct something that I said last week uh, when I gave you the count of Jacob's sons. Jacob did have 12 sons. I think I said 11 last week. I got a little bit mixed up because Levi factors in there as well. So there are 12 sons of Jacob. I said that wrong last week. Uh, with the addition of the two tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, there are still only 12 allotments of land because the Levites did not receive inheritance. So just clearing that up, want to make sure you're aware of that and that our understanding of this is accurate. Nevertheless, as we wrap up our time in Joshua's account of the land, as it was given to each one of these tribes uh, who did receive land as an inheritance, I want us to finish well. Actually, as I look at what has been recorded for us in these chapters in Joshua 18 and 19, that's the main idea. That is what sticks out from this, th these two chapters. So if you will direct your attention to Joshua 18 verse 1, you'll actually see that everything that is recorded here happened once the land of Canaan lay subdued before the nation of Israel. So the great conquest of the land is at an end. There are still some Canaanites who are holding out in the land of various cities, but the big coalitions and the armies at this point have been broken. So victory at this point has been declared, and it's time to take possession of God's good gift. Joshua 18 and 19 are important chapters for us uh, to consider for a number of reasons. First, they fill in the blanks on all that God was doing to keep his promises. We've seen how the book of Joshua, the main idea of the book of Joshua, is God's faithfulness to keep his word. Uh, so these are a testimony of that. Uh, these chapters also designate allotments of land to the other seven tribes. So they inform us about how God uh, kept his word, how he provided for each and every one of them. They also inform us about how God honored Joshua for his faithful service in leadership. But most importantly, the, the most important uh, item that I want to bring your attention to this morning is how these chapters give us insight into what it looks like to live in the victory that God gives his people here and now. It's been said many times, and rightly so, that the church fights from victory, not for victory. And the reason that we say that is because our victory was secured 
by the person and the work of Jesus Christ when he made atonement for our sin through his suffering and death on the cross where he broke the power of, of, of sin and then he broke the power of death by rising again from the grave on the third day and then he ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns at the Father's right hand awaiting the day when he will come in judgment on the earth and will make all things new. That is our victory. It has everything to do with the objective work of Christ. It's not something that's up in the air as if it might happen or it might not happen. Jesus has done those things. He has dealt the fatal blow to sin and death. He does reign as Lord over all. Victory has been won. But that doesn't mean that the danger is over for us. The victory of Christ doesn't mean that we can somehow take our helmets off and put our rifles down. No, the victory of Christ is what is meant to spur us on, knowing that our victory is secure, but there's still work to be done. We're still struggling in our fight against the flesh. We are still at war until God calls us home. The real value of Joshua 18 and 19 is that it urges us on in that fight. Not to grow complacent or presumptuous about the work of Christ, but rather to be invigorated by it. So this passage is immensely relevant for us, not only because it assures us of the faithfulness of God's promises, but also because of the way it is so focused on teaching us the art of finishing well. And that's what I want to present to you this morning as the main idea of our passage this morning. So the main idea this morning I want to make to you is this. Brothers and sisters... By the grace of God that lives within you, because of the work of Jesus Christ, finish well. Resolve to finish well. Now, if you're looking at these two chapters, you'll notice that we are looking at a passage that is even longer than what we did when we did Joshua 15, which was 63 verses. Uh, so, what we're going to be doing here this morning is, and I'm going to be taking what you might call a helicopter approach here. We're going to be flying over the tops of the trees, but we're going to be dropping down from, from time to time into some of these clearings so we can appreciate the lesson that is being taught to us here. So, I'm going to start this morning by reading Joshua 18, verses 1 through 10, which I find actually do a good job of summarizing the content that's, in, that's here. But then as we move, make our way through the text, we're going to be making our way through a few of the details, kind of operating at that thousand foot levels in, in some areas. So I would like to ask you if you would please stand for the reading of God's word uh, as we read from Joshua 18 verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description to here to me, and I will cast lots for you before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. 
and Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land and write a description and return to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down the land, up and down in the land, and wrote in a book a description of it by towns and seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua at the camp of Shiloh, and, Sh- and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua appointed apportioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. Amen. Please be seated. Now, I don't know that we're always really aware of how dangerous times of plenty can be to our souls. For the most part, in the book of Joshua, the generation which first received the promised land thrived in their obedience to God. But we see that when the adrenaline of battle wore off and they began to settle in, complacency started to creep in with it. They had to learn how to live in the victory which God had won for them in Canaan. In a similar way, we who have been bought by the blood of Christ must learn to live in the victory which he has secured for us. So there are three important lessons for us to learn from these two chapters about how to do that, about how to survive and thrive in the victory of God's grace. And these lessons are going to be our three points this morning, which I have tried to, tried to phrase in some ways that will stick out in your mind. So first, don't forget to collect your check. Don't forget to collect your check. Second, take joy in your posting. Take joy in your posting. Third, follow your leaders. Follow your leaders. These three lessons teach us how to better live in the victory of God's grace. So let's first begin uh, by remembering not to forget our che- to, to collect our checks. A payday, I think you'll all agree, is a great day. Uh, before coming here, I used to work at Aldi, and every one of my co-workers always used to get excited about that second Thursday as it would come because it meant that we were getting paid. And as a manager, one of my jobs was to make sure that everyone picked up their pay stubs after they got shipped to us by corporate. Now, it was always kind of funny uh, because uh, how people would treat their pay stubs because at first, you could always tell who was new because they would always get so excited about their, getting that envelope. They said, this is my money, like I get to take it home. But the reality was that there was no real value to that pay stub because everything was by direct deposit. So as time went on, you would see all the veteran workers, they were kind of indifferent about their pay stub because if they wanted to know how much they would make, they'd just go look at their bank account. So it got to a point where I would have these stacks of pay stubs that nobody would pick up. Uh, actually, it got, I got in trouble. I, I, I fell to it myself. I actually got in trouble one time because uh, I thought I had a pay stub that was actually turned out to be a check, and I think I just threw it in the trash. Um, so it was, my, it was my check, and then corporate called, and we got it figured out. But I realized at that time, I better make sure that I, I know what's going on. Um, it's, 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 it's hard for us to imagine coming to the end of a pay period clocking out of your shift and then neglecting to actually pick up your check on the way out because you can't be bothered to go into the office to claim it. And yet, I think that's exactly what's going on here with the seven tribes of Israel after they had received God's good gift of the land in Canaan. 
Notice here in Joshua 18 that things have started to change a little bit in, in, um, since Judah, Ephraim, and Manasseh had received their allotment. The nation is starting to settle in. Joshua is no longer at Gilgal. The congregation, rather, is assembled about 30 miles or so northwest at Shiloh, where the, temper, the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant would now be housed up until the days of the prophet Samuel. Shiloh was a part of the territory which was given to the tribe of Ephraim. Uh, that's worth noticing because until the days of David, this is where God actually appointed to be his dwelling place in the midst of, of the people. So these things are beginning to become permanent. The time for conquest is at an end. It, it's time for Israel to settle down, to fill the land, and to subdue it according to God's blessing. But apparently, that's not happening. In verses 2 and 3, we find that there are still remaining among the people uh, seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned out. No one here would, unless there were some bizarre circumstances, I, I suppose you could come up with some idea, no one here would buy a house, get the keys, pull in the driveway, but stay in their car. No, no, you wouldn't do that. You would go in. You would take possession of it. It becomes your home. You settle down in it, and you enjoy everything that it has to offer. Now, we might reason from verse 2 that the reason the people hadn't gone in and they hadn't taken possession of what God was giving them was because it hadn't been apportioned out to them yet. But Joshua's words to the people here seem to indicate that those tribes don't seem to be in a big rush to get what's been given to them. He asked them, how long will you put off going to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given to you? So it's no longer in the future. It's in the present, even in the past. It's yours. Why aren't you going to get it? Now, this might be a rhetorical question, since we see that Joshua was appointed to be the one who gave each allotment to each tribe. But we can hardly think that Joshua would, try, would chide these tribes for complacency as he seems to do if he was the one who was to blame for their failure to go and to possess what God was giving them. So it seems most likely that there's a spirit of complacency that is taking hold of these tribes. There's a lot of work yet to be done and they're not in a huge hurry to go and do that. There are still pockets of resistance to be taken care of and we see that the momentum of these seven tribes is obviously starting to fade and sputter. Now, if you're like me, you find that it's very easy to start a project. It's exciting to start a project, but it's hard to finish it. So the preacher of Ecclesiastes declares that better is the end of a thing than its beginning. The Israelites needed to be encouraged to finish what had been started. They were growing lethargic. They were getting comfortable but the work wasn't done. So this is a crucial moment for the nation. The land is subdued. God had given the land to them. Not one word of his promises had failed to have its effect. Their inheritance is ready. It's like the ding on the microwave. You just got to go get it. All they had to do was simply, by faith, go and take possession of what he was giving them. Now, we're in danger of falling into great sin when being content to let God's promises remain promises, we satisfy our hearts with lesser temporary comforts and securities. The Bible teaches us that while we are saved on the merits of the work of Christ, 
that we are also called to live in obedience to him. The promise is that all who repent of their sin and trust in Christ will be saved. When we are joined to Christ by faith, we join him in his death, dying to sin and the demands of the law, and we join him in his life, being made heirs with him in the glory that is above. But, as Dale Davis points out from Joshua 18, the promises of God in this gospel of grace are never intended to be a sedative to our souls. Rather, they are intended to be stimulants, stimulating us to active obedience on the basis of those promises. That is the path of true faith. A heart that is alive is a heart that beats. And a heart which has been made alive by the work of Christ beats for him. So you can tell that a person is truly born again because they have a love for God that drives them to make every breath count for his his glory. So brothers and sisters, we say a lot in this church about the gospel of grace, how we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But do not think for a moment that the gospel of grace excuses us from acting on that grace, living by this grace. If you have been born again, then you are going to be affected by the work of the Spirit in your life. There's going to be evidence of that. And as he testifies to the truth of the promises of the gospel, he's also going to fuel you to run this race of life with all the energy of your redemption. Complacency is a poison that seeps into the soul and blinds our eyes to the glory of Christ with cheap satisfactions which are unworthy of God's call on your life. Life is a combat zone. And so Paul warned Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 9 that those who desire to be rich in the fleeting pleasures of this world and all it has to offer fall into a temptation. They fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. So Paul instructs us, but as for you, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made the good confe- you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, Paul tells Timothy, who gives life to all things and of Christ who made his testimony before Pontius Pilate, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Paul's charge to Timothy is Paul's charge to us, to press forward, to fight the good fight, to flee complacency, to flee things that might satisfy us here and now, and to thirst for the eternal. While the scriptures teach us that we are saved by grace through faith, that this is not of ourselves, but is the gift of God, they likewise instruct us to make our calling and election sure by taking hold of the inheritance that was purchased for us by Christ at the cost of his own blood. The comfort of Christ's victory for us on on Calvary must spur us on. It must cause us to run for the prize, to fight in confidence of the victory that is ours, and to hunger for the greatest, the greater treasures which are above. What, what good is it if a runner 
runs his heart out, but then stops at the finish line? What good is it for the worker to work night and day till his fingers are worn out on the factory floor, but then to neglect to pick up his check? No, Paul says. No. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but rather put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. Friends, victory has been won for us, just as it was for the tribes of Israel in the days of Joshua. So, collect the check. Invest your inheritance in the treasury of heaven. Put on Christ and run against the darkness. That brings us to consider our second point this morning. A second lesson of how we live in the victory that has been secured for us. And that is simply this. Take joy in your posting. Take joy in your posting. Now, military recruiters are notorious they have a notorious reputation. I don't think this is for every, every, not every military recruiter is like this, but that doesn't change the fact that there's a notorious reputation they have for telling prospective recruits whatever they want to hear so that they'll sign their name on the dotted line and fill their quotas. Uh, one example of this, one of my friends from high school joined the Marines because he wanted to play in the Marine band. But then last I heard from him, he was actually strapping bombs on planes. When you join the military, you go where you're ordered. And it's a very rare thing that a soldier gets to pick where he's posted, let alone what he'll be doing there. When it came to receiving their inheritance, we see that each one of these seven tribes went where God appointed for them to go. Uh, We're told how the land was divided into seven portions. Judah continuing with his territory in the south, the house of Joseph to the north, and the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan River to what they had received. In which you can see here, I don't have the pointer, but um, uh, you can see there uh, these three massive tracts of land. And uh, we're reminded, thank you, thank you Cole. So yeah, we've got the, uh, this is the east side of the uh, Jordan River. We've got uh, East Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. We've got Judah here in the south. We've got Ephraim and Manasseh here. So these seven tribes are going to be a portion here, here, and here. Is that helpful? Okay, good. All right, so they went to where they were called. And the Levites, we are reminded in verse 7, had no portion of land which was given to them to be their territory. Now we'll touch on what was given to the Levites, the cities, but, uh, when we get to chapter 21. But for now, you just need to understand that the Levites, their inheritance was the Lord. They had been called to the priesthood, and they had a very specific job to do in and amongst Israel. Now, after the land was divided, we're told that it was distributed before the Lord at the camp, which was at Shiloh, with each of the seven tribes receiving their portion by lot. Now, we don't typically use the word lot, but it basically uh, it would be like drawing straws or uh, casting uh, the Urim and the Thummim, uh, which is likely there before the Lord with the de- every decision being made there. Now, from our perspective, this sounds a little 
and this sounds like a little bit like random chance, um, but our author is very careful to make sure that we understand that is not what's going on here. He's making sure that we understand that all of this, though it looks like chance from our perspective, is being orchestrated by God. This is a, this is a real world application of the proverb that while the die is cast into the, li- the lap, every, it's every decision is from the Lord. So our author is making that point to us. And he does that in verse 6, where he says that Joshua would cast lots before the Lord, meaning that the decision was not really coming down to the roll of the dice, but according to what God had determined, which he repeats again for us in verse 10, to make sure that we understand that each one of these lots was being portioned out by God. There's no haggling over what was gotten by each tribe. Uh, no case to be made over which tribe deserved to get which, which space. This is all God's decision. And we get the sense that as each tribe received what was given to it uh, before the Lord, they received it without any real complaint, unlike the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, which we looked at last week. Now the rest of Joshua chapter 18 and the majority of Joshua 19 record which lot fell for each tribe. The first, we see, fell to the, to the tribe of Benjamin. The second to Simeon, then Zebulun, then Issachar, then Asher, Naphtali, and then finally Dan. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here about the boundaries of each tribe, uh, but there are a couple of interesting and important points that I want to bring to your attention here. First, you'll notice here that Benjamin's territory, though it's relatively small, is described amongst these seven tribes with the most with the greatest amount of detail, uh, not unlike the way that Judah's territory was described. Uh, there's probably a few reasons for this. Uh, part, that might be partially because it was in such close proximity to Judah and to uh, the tribes of Joseph. So Benjamin is actually enjoying a distinguished place here, which includes Jericho and Jerusalem. Uh, Simeon, on the other hand, which drew the second lot, received land which is which was originally in the midst of what was given to Judah. So you can actually see that outlined here. Uh, Simeon is actually in the middle of Judah. Um, as we look at this, we're, we're told that this was because the land of Judah was too large for them. But there's only, when we look at actually how this is described, we're only given the cities where Simeon was allowed, was, was given. There's no mention of land boundaries here, the way that it is mentioned in uh, what is given to the other tribes. So it stands that there's actually another reason why Simeon received this inheritance. Uh, we see that it actually fulfills what Jacob spoke about Levi and Simeon when he declared that their descendants would be scattered amongst their brothers, that they would not receive an inheritance that was their own because of the way they had slaughtered the men of Shechem in Genesis 34. Now the descriptions of the land given to Issachar, Asher, and Dan are progressively shorter and shorter. And I think that's because we're intended to fill in the blanks here from the land descriptions that are given to the other tribes. The final interesting piece of information that we're given here about the, this inheritance is that we're told is about the tribe, what's given to the tribe of Dan. Apparently, when the people of Dan went to take possession of the land that was given to them, they encountered heavy resistance from the Amorites, and they were pushed off the plain up into the hill country so that when they failed to take it, they just decided, you know what, we're just going to go somewhere else. 
it's really one of the most bizarre situations in the Bible since we see that after being defeated, the tribe of Dan, rather than appealing for help from, this, from their brothers, they actually decided to take over a very peaceful city named Lashem, and then they took the area around it, and which hadn't been granted to them, and then they took it anyway, and they renamed it Dan after their ancestor. The whole event is described in more vivid detail in Judges 1, and that is actually listed as the final straw of failure to obey God, which leads to God's announcement that he will no longer give Israel victory over the Canaanites, which they have left in the land, because they would not obey his voice. But that's a passage for another day. You just need to see the, the seedbed for that is being laid here. For now, our focus really is on the land which was allotted to each tribe by God. What we're seeing described here is that piece by piece, Israel's inheritance is coming together, stretching from Dan to the north to the furthest reaches of Judah to the south. Twelve tribes, each dwelling together in the land of promise, in a land flowing with milk and honey, a land in which God made his special presence dwell with them. So, here is Israel with her inheritance, a collective city on the hill, shining out to the world, beckoning them to come and to see the glory of the King of Kings. Now, not all of these tribes, we, as, as you can see here on the map, received areas of Canaan which were, which were as large or as lush as some of the other tribes did. These tracts of territory were not given with equity. Judah received a kingly portion. Ephraim and Manasseh received a double blessing. On the other hand, Simeon dwelled in a territory amongst his brothers. And we see that Dan got squeezed out of his possession so that he went further north. Levi received no territory for himself, but received the inheritance of the priesthood. And despite all of that, despite the fact that God did not give the land with equity that he gave them according to what he had commanded and what he saw fit, we see that not one of these tribes could find fault with God's good gift. The land was just an added blessing to the greatest thing which they had received, God. Remember, first and foremost, beyond the land, the land is a marker of this, but most importantly, God gave Israel himself. He called them by his own name. He called them his people. So whether he gave one tribe the stunning desert of the Negev or the hill country of Ephraim or the heights of Zion, they all received something significant, each one of them with its unique blessing according to his wisdom and his pleasure. The post which God assigned to each tribe was a good post. Now God is not looking to recruit into the rank and file of his heavenly army based on what you can offer him. Nor does he call us or equip us to serve the kingdom of heaven in identical ways. Everything we have, everything we are, is a gift of his grace. And he calls us and he equips us in different ways, sometimes at different times, according to his good and wise purposes. We're like individual pieces of stained glass, or each one of us being different uh, shapes, different colors, but set in a window through which the glory and the, the glory of the light of Christ shines. It can be easy to envy the gift, the gifts or the calling that God has on other people's lives. 
It can be easy to look at where God has stationed us and to think how much happier we would be if he called us to do something else. It can be easy to stray into the trap of pride, thinking more highly of ourselves than our brother or our sister, who maybe they struggle to pray, or they struggle to believe God's promises, or they struggle to understand certain points of theology, and so somehow we think that we're significant, more significant than they are. All too often we evaluate our place or the place of others in the kingdom on the basis of what they do or the gifts that God has given them. Away with such thinking. I don't know if you noticed, but in Joshua 18 and 19, it actually accounts for all the territories which were given to all the tribes. Meaning that the author of Joshua here wants us to see that what was given to the tribe of Dan is just as significant as which was given to Judah. Because it was given by God as his good gift. God provides for his people richly. So whatever he has given you, which is significant, and worthy uh, of your consideration, is it's worthy of your joy because he has given it to you for a greater purpose than what you and I might think is important. What pastor hasn't wished that they could preach as Spurgeon did to crowds, watching hundreds come to faith as the word goes out? It can be hard to work stony ground when it seems to bear little fruit. Faithful pastoral ministry is rarely recognized in any magazine. What nursery worker hasn't felt the burden of anonymity as they struggle to show the love of Christ to children which they care for so that their parents can be in here during the service? God calls each one of us to serve in diverse ways for purposes which he has set in his kingdom and for his church. And we need to remember that. There is not one thing you do for the kingdom that escapes God's notice. While it may be nice to have your work recognized by others, what really is the applause of men compared to the approval of God? I'll tell you what it is. It's rubbish. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, and I hope you do, Jesus says to follow him to take a servant's towel, to forsake the approval and the applause of men, and to invest in the treasure that is in, your, is, is in heaven. It is important that we each remember that we are all products of grace. God has called each one of us to some sort of ministry. There's not one person who's a member of this church who was called to watch from the sidelines. You have been equipped specifically to serve this church. You must employ them. Some of those aspects of ministry may be very visible. If you want to sing, get up here. Some of those aspects of service may be invisible. Whatever post we're assigned to, it is significant because we know we have been commissioned from the Lord to do it. The glory of your work as part of a church has nothing to do with how visible your ministry is. It has everything to do with the glorious reality that if you are part of the body of Christ, then you have been equipped and called to exalt him. We always face, one commentator reminds us, the temptation of thinking that we are elite rather than elect, losing sight of the fact that other believers share in the same Father's wealth that we do. 
So let us fight that temptation by remembering to make by by remembering what actually makes our work significant. It's our Father's work, which He's called us to do. And if He we if we have His approval, what more could we hope to add to it? So, brothers and sisters, fight complacency by finding joy where God has posted you. Finally, find joy in the victory of Christ by following your leaders. Follow your leaders. Now, though he was old, we see that Joshua's leadership was sharp as it had ever been. Joshua sensed how the people were losing steam here. God had called Joshua to make the people inherit the promised land. And that meant more than just wielding a sword. We see that like a true shepherd, Joshua cared for the tribes, urging them on in obedience to God. What are you waiting for, he asked them. How long will you go on, will you go on putting off the, taking the possession of the land which the Lord your God has given you? Praise God for the way that he gives us godly leaders who provoke us and lead us in the way of righteous obedience, the way that Joshua does here with the people of Israel. Joshua models godly leadership before us in at least three ways, which are helpful for us to consider this morning as we consider um, those whom God has appointed uh, to lead us in the context of the local church. First, we see that Joshua uh, modeled godly leadership by urging the people to trust God and to act in faith on God's promises. Joshua could have tried to use his position uh, to gain authority and, and to try to gain a claim for himself, but he didn't do that. No, his greatest concern as a leader was the obedience of God's people to God's commands. Joshua knew that at this moment the people were at a point of critical mass. He used his position of authority to urge the people on, and as a result we see that the people received the blessings that God had secured for them. Godly leadership always seeks to direct our attention to the word of God so that we'll obey God. Now the second way Joshua modeled godly leadership to Israel was by leading by example. Joshua just didn't deliver commands to Israel and walk away. He didn't give them commands he himself was unwilling to do. No, like a true leader, he led from the front. He drew strength and courage from God's promises and then he threw himself into the fray, trusting that God was going to keep his word. Notice in verses 49 and 50 of chapter uh, 19 that though Joshua receives a very unique inheritance, no, no one else received a city for themselves, not even Caleb. Though Joshua received this unique inheritance, we see that he did not appoint this city or its land to himself. Verse 50 says that though this was the place that Joshua requested, ultimately it was given to him by Israel according to the command of the Lord. This city, uh, Timanth Serah, was located in the hill country of Ephraim, which is to be expected because Joshua was of the tribe of Ephraim. But you can't help but notice that Joshua actually requested to be given a city in the place where his fellow Ephraimites had said was too small for them, in which they had expressed concern over because of how close the Canaanites who had those iron chariots they were afraid of were. So while the rest of Ephraim balked, Joshua went courageously. His inheritance was in God's hands as much as the inheritance of all the other families of Israel had been. And God richly blesses Joshua here for his faithful service. 
It's a reminder to us that God remembers his faithful ones and that he richly rewards them. Joshua had the courage to trust God so that when he charged others to do the same, they actually had an example to follow. This is the sort of leadership that God calls pastors and elders to do as well. In 1 Peter 5, we we read this instruction. Shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We see that what Joshua the example he gives us is the same example that pastors are called to do. Pastors, too, must lead by example. And when they do, we as a church must have the courage to follow. Now, the third way we see Joshua leading, modeling good leadership, is that he provided practical ways to motivate people to obedience. Joshua doesn't stop here by asking the tribes when they plan to follow through with taking possession of the land. He actually instructs the people to, uh, to take steps towards that end. He tells them, give me three men from each tribe, and he charges those men to go out, to write a description of the land, to divide it, and then to bring it to him so that he may distribute it to the different tribes. Joshua doesn't just say, hey, go and obey God. He actually gives them a starting place with practical ways in which to do that. He gave them a starting place and urged them on not permitting them to play the victim of complacency as it was setting in. Now, I love the deep doctrines of God. I love to talk about them. I love to study them. I love to think about them. I love the richness of God's word. I love to see people grow in their love for God as they marvel at the glory and the complexity of who he is. When I first started preaching, I don't think I struggled so much in teasing out those deep things of God's Word. I, I, was, in, I was in Bible college, and I was like getting filled up. Like a, it's like a fire hydrant that just wants to blow out. So every Sunday, I would come with these deep, glorious truths about God, and I would come at the end of my sermon, and I would think, okay, what's the application here? Uh, behold the glory of God. That was, I don't know how many times I said that when I first started preaching. I don't think I actually did a good job of showing how those things, those deep, glorious truths, actually affect the nitty-gritty of a Monday morning. So, as a pastor, I'm really thankful for Joshua's example here, not only in compelling and constraining people to obey God's word, but actually helping them take practical steps to do that. So, don't ever think that the deep doctrines of God are irrelevant for your everyday life. Living in obedience to God means living in response to the beauty of who he is. But at the same time, when you think about those deep things which God has revealed in his word, don't forget that he has revealed those things not just to increase your knowledge, but actually for those to have those realities as they have been exposed affect the way you live. As a pastor, my goal is not simply to expose you to the word of God, but to make sure you have a clear understanding of it and to instruct you in how to live your life in response to it. In the past week, it's been a wild week. I won't go into the details of it, but in the past week, I have been sharply reminded that pastoral ministry is a work, the results of which I have little to no control over. 
I can preach God's word to you, but only he can apply it to your heart. I can urge you to be a member of a local church and to invest in it as God calls us to do, but only you can listen and do that. I can urge you to obey God, but I can't make you follow through with his commands. I can pray for you and with you with tears, but it takes the Spirit of God to actually turn your heart to Christ and then to perfect you in the image of Christ. There is so much of pastoral ministry that is out of my control, and it's a little unnerving. So 1 Peter 5, verse 2, has become a banner verse for me. And this is what it says. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. As much as I love all of you, you are not my flock. You are God's. And sometimes I can forget that he has bigger and better plans for you and that he cares for you with a love that is far deeper than the love that I have for you. A shepherd may care for his flock. He may lead them to water and to pasture. He may protect them from wolves. He may direct them in the way that they should go, but in the end, the sheep have to listen. It's not for no reason that the author of Hebrews then instructs the church to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, flock of Christ, Listen to my appeal this morning. Take the inheritance that is yours in Christ. Submit yourself to him. Fight against that complacency that just strives to sneak in at the times when times are peaceful. Invest your inheritance in the banks of heaven. Take joy in the posting which God has called you to do. And commit to following God, the godly example and instruction that God has provided for you for your benefit. These are three ways that God has provided for us as a church to thrive in the victory that he has won in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. May God clothe us with the grace and strengthen us and enable us to walk accordingly. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning thankful that the victory is not ours to be won, but that in Christ we are more than conquerors. Even so, Father, we ask that you would give us the strength to walk according to these promises, to not let complacency settle in among us, but to live in the joy of the inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would be with us to find joy in where you have called us to serve so that we serve one another with gladness and that in so doing, we would make one another's joy in Christ full. And then finally, Father, I pray that you would give us, um, that you would be with me so that I would provide a, a right example to your flock and that as we do so, that we would walk together by grace according to your commands. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.